Welcome to the Tech Humanist Show, a multimedia format program exploring how data and technology shape the human experience. I'm your host, Kate O'Neill. This week, it's so easy to say, okay, this is an empathy building experience, put on the headset, pretend to be someone else, just end it there. And now this person walks away with this idea that they know what it's like to have a disability or to live in a different skin color. Caitlin Ugalik Phillips is the author of The Future of Feeling, Building Empathy in a Tech-Obsessed World. She's a journalist and editor whose writing on law, finance, health, and technology has appeared in The Establishment, Vice, Quartz, Institutional Investor Magazine, Law 360, Columbia Journalism Review, Lit Hub, Scientific American, New York Post, Salon, and Narratively, among others. Just insert name of publication here. She is probably published in it. Caitlin writes a blog and newsletter about empathy featuring reportage, essays, and interviews. Caitlin, you are live on the Tech Humanist Show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, me too. This seems like it's been kind of an inevitable conversation between us. I've been looking forward to it very much. So I'll just jump right in and ask you, how did you first get on, on researching and writing about how tech is changing the future of human empathy? Well, it really came from the concern that I, about that question, you know, I, um, as an old millennial, I'm 32. So <laughs> I kind of grew up online first with AOL Instant Messenger and LiveJournal oh, yeah. and then MySpace. And I, I really miss MySpace. Um, but, you know, on and on and to, to where we are now. And a few years ago, 2014, 2015, I just was kind of having a lot of really negative experiences, friends and strangers on social media and just kind of trying to think more broadly about like, man, this is where we've gotten just in the past 10 years. How are things going to change as technology continues to change? I was some tech finance stuff at the time um, at Institutional Investor, and I was just realizing, you know, okay, all this investment is happening in the Internet of Things and in virtual reality and all these other new emerging technologies. And I was just worried, you know, what is going to happen to our ability to communicate with one another? And it was really a situation where I tried to find a book that focused on solutions or, you know, the concerns about that. And I didn't find one at the time. So I, I had to write it. That's your job. <laughs> you identify a gap. Now you got to write it. Well, it, and it's, it's such an important book. It, it covers such an interesting topic. And we'll, we'll dig in in a, in a lot of different ways. Um, but I actually want to do a little quick side note and just ask, you know, how tech affects uh, human life and human uh just experience in general, uh, this this pandemic has certainly changed human life and human experience, and tech has been a part of that. So I'm curious what your life uh, during the pandemic has has looked like. Have you taken up any new hobbies? You know, developed any new skills? Sort of picked up any new wide ranging research projects that you'll eventually publish? <laughs> well, I don't. I haven't been that productive, but I <laughs> I will say that I, you know, the book came out in February like a month before everyone started going into lockdown. And I definitely did not imagine that some of the kind of dystopian seeming situations described in the book would become reality so quickly yeah. and kind of do this big social experiment right away on, you know, what does it mean to be plugged in constantly all the time and have to communicate that way? 
I have been trying to actually not spend as much time with technology because, you know, all of my work day is on on the computer, except that I have taken up Planet Crossing on the Nintendo Switch. Animal Crossing. <laughs> so, Everybody's crazy about Animal Crossing. I know. It's so it's perfect. Like I'm not a big gamer, but so it's perfect for me because it's just mindless tasks, cute. And, you know, that's, you know, I have started doing some research for a potential new project that's actually about something totally different. Um, people keep asking me, you know, oh, you should write a follow up to your book about, and I'm like, I don't think I need to write a book. I think everybody knows what's happening now, you know, like. Well, and also your book just came out. I know, well, that's, I know. that's inevitable, though. I mean, everybody who writes a book knows that, you know, as soon as the book is handed over and done, you're on to the next idea. Like you already yeah, think, are thinking about it. I don't think people realize that how how long that process takes. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe in 2023, we'll see something new. <laughs> Will it be about Animal Crossing, do you think? Probably not, unfortunately. <laughs> okay. I'll keep that for myself. <laughs> well, I loved I loved the book. I loved a lot that happened in it, what you covered. And I loved the people that you introduced us to. There was one in particular, Dylan Marin or Marone, I don't know how you pronounce his last name. I wasn't aware of his work, but, but what you described about uh, conversations with people who hate me and unboxing every single word and sitting in bathrooms with trans people, they're all brilliant concepts. I did end up watching a few episodes of the every single word because they're only like 11 seconds long, you know, which mm -hmm. just for the audience, in case you haven't run across these, if you look, uh, go to YouTube and, and look up Dylan, M-A-R-R-O-N, every single word. And it's what he's done is splice together or just edit down feature films to just those lines that were spoken by actors of color. And it's sobering. And I mean, I'm sure that many uh, um, people of color were already aware of this phenomenon and white people may have been aware of it too, but it's such a striking, striking illustration. Uh, so I think the one I looked at was Moonrise Kingdom and it was 11 seconds long. You know, it really gets the point across. But anyway, he's just a brilliant uh, cr creator. And I loved how you, you um, wove in what he's doing with uh, how especially with uh, conversations with people who hate me, with uh, with how people are interacting online. So have you found any other cool people since you've published and that you, you are like, oh, I wish I could have included them? <laughs> I'm so glad you asked that question because yes, and I think that happens so often, but, that, but authors don't really get to say that. Um, but first, Dylan is great. I got to meet him in person and um, his podcast um, I think it's still ongoing, is really an exercise in empathy. I highly recommend listening to it. But to answer your question, so I recently interviewed Dr. Matthew at the University of Northern Colorado, and he does a lot of research on gaming um, and education, so specifically for social-emotional learning for younger kids and the use of games in schools. And he and I had a conversation about like ed, ed and virtual schooling, but he just had so many fascinating things to say about how kids learn social-emotional skills through technology and we talked a little bit about VR and afterwards I was like, well, either you should have written my book or I wish I had <laughs> talked to you four years ago. Yeah, that hits um, on at least three or four topics, right? Yeah, and then I also, the organization Color of Change, I, I didn't come across them until uh, relatively recently, but it's, um, it's an online civil rights organization and they deal with a lot of these kinds of things from like the policy arena, not just empathy, but 
civil rights on the internet. Um, and it would have been great to include them. And honestly, you, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I came across your work a little bit too late as well. And you would have been a great person to include. Well, too. we're connected now and we're doing, yeah. Great, so yeah, that's wonderful. No, those are, and those are brilliant examples too. Um, although at least on my end, the audio cut out when you gave the name of the first researcher, can you just say his name, his or her name again? Yeah, it's Dr. Matthew Farber. He's at the um, okay. University of Northern Colorado. Great. Yeah, I, I'm sure that there were uh, uh, listeners who were like, oh, I didn't catch that name. Uh, you know, what, what I think what was so interesting for me about your book is it's it, empathy is this concept that I think people talk about a lot. And then they do it in this very abstract, broad, you know, un, intellectually undisciplined way. Mm. But what you've done with the book is really unpack it and, and go into different aspects of with intellectual rigor. And so I, even at one point, you quoted an essayist named Leslie Jameson, who was writing about medical empathy, and she wrote what I think may have been the most beautiful thing I've ever read about empathy, and it was this. Empathy isn't just listening, it's asking the questions whose answers need to be listened. Empathy requires inquiry as much as imagination. Empathy requires knowing you know nothing. Empathy means acknowledging a horizon of context that extends perpetually beyond what you can see. And so I, to me, that was just like, it seems like she's really isolated these elements that make empathy such a special concept. Like it's imaginative, it's active, it's curious, and it's dimensional. So do you find that you collect definitions of empathy as part of what, of what you're doing here? Do you have a favorite? Yeah, that, that definitely wasn't something I expected, but that has definitely happened. And yeah, you uh, thank you for reading that bit because that's from Empathy Exams. It's our collection of essays. And it gives me chills because that was actually the book that I picked up thinking I might find what I was looking for. And it was something totally different, but so so beautifully written. And I think one of the most important parts is when she says the perpetual, I don't remember the exact phrasing, but that your inability sort of knowing what you don't know and you may not ever know, but it's kind of like what's in that gap there that you are still making an effort to show emotion and show that you care. Yeah. And I think that's a really important piece that often gets missed when empathy becomes a buzzword, especially in the tech community and in the business community, especially in business where you have all of the, you know, emp empathy, the empathy index and all of these, you know, it's just used as to actually just mean, oh, you know, we kind of care about our employees or, you know, right. we, we um, have a great HR department. But in terms of a favorite definition, I liked thinking, and this is actually from, I think, a Buddhist, some Buddhist writing. I can't remember exactly where it came from, but that sympathy is feeling for someone and empathy is feeling with someone. It's a simple, you know, and further to say, even just making the effort to feel with someone, acknowledging that you might not literally know what it's like to experience what they're experiencing, I think that's kind of like an active form of empathy. Yeah, it's a that's a really great distillation phrase, because I think that's what a lot of it comes down to is it, you can work around the nuance and the abstraction. And I love nuance and abstraction. I'll work around nuance and abstraction all day. <laughs> but when you're actually trying to deliver um, something that's applicable for people that people can actually take and understand in in real 
useful ways, it, it requires that level of intellectual rigor. And I find this too, a lot of my work centers around meaning. And hmm. meaning is a sim- similarly like a concept that people talk about in very abstract terms. And so a lot of the work I've done over the last few decades is to develop clear constructs that people can apply and how, how they can break down what we're really talking about when we talk about meaning and specifically meaningful experiences. So did you, was that part of in any way what drew you to the topic that it, it lacked that intellectual rigor? I mean, you mentioned going to, to the one book and being disappointed and, and kind of feeling like now I need to create this. Yeah, I think that might have been part of it. I mean, I think what I at the beginning thought was missing was a future looking piece of intellectualism, I guess, that that specifically focused on that tech and human interconnection. But as I went on with my reporting, I really started to think more about the danger of having a word that can kind of be used in different ways. I know that a lot of the things that I wrote about, and I tried to be clear that there were pros and cons and that there were criticisms of different things, especially like when it comes to virtual reality uh, experiences that are meant to build empathy. It can be, it's so easy to say, okay, this is an empathy building experience, put on the headset, pretend to be someone else, just end it there. And now this person walks away with this idea that they know what it's like to be to have a disability or to live in a different um, skin color. And I think that's that's kind of why I was looking to really lay out, you know, talking about when I'm talking about empathy. So that is clear that I don't subscribe to those <laughs> things. Yeah, that was a really compelling section of the book when you wrote about virtual reality, augmented reality, mixed reality, like all of the the uh, kinds of mixed reality options and what was happening with different experiments that people were, were trying. You know, there's this concept that virtual reality is the, the empathy machine, as Chris Milk called it, right? And, and, right. and then I think, you know, there's there's a lot of sort of default acceptance of that. And I love how well you unpacked it. So walk us through some of what you found when you started to you know, examine what was happening in some of the research that was actually out there. Well, one interesting thing is that there's not a ton. Like a lot of what I wrote about is so ongoing. So it was kind of difficult to try and I couldn't really prove much, but I could talk about my experiences and a lot of other people's and the little bit of research. The most eye-opening experience and interview was with Dr. Courtney Cogburn. She, I believe, is at Columbia. She helped create this experience called 1000 Cut Journey. It's an embodied virtual experience. So you put on a headset and also hold these controllers and you move around us and you kind of go through different stages of life of this young black man when he's a kid, when when he's a little bit older, when he's an adult, and it's animated, and you're kind of embodied, so you can sort of look down, and you know your your arms are the color of his arms, and you you're being spoken to as if you're him. I went into that experience excited, but also skeptical for the reasons I just explained. And when I came out of it, I really felt like it didn't. I felt like more than anything, it highlighted to me just how little I actually know about what it's like to be this particular type of other person. So it wasn't that, oh, now I'll, I could just put this in my white ally backpack and say that I you know, had this experience, but that it, it emphasized to me how different my experience was, which I think triggered maybe a more useful kind of empathy that was like, okay, let me learn a little more or kind of keep going. But I yeah. think 
some research that I read also emphasized that that's not going to be everyone's experience in part because the experience and sort of behaviors and personality that you have going into these experiences makes a huge, has a huge impact on how you feel going out. So like any other tool, and I say this over and over in the book, like these things could be used to help us build empathy, but also to potentially be manipulative or, you know, cause other problems. Right. I mean, that's uh, one of the recurring themes in my work is that there's a lot of good to be harnessed here. And there's also a lot of bad and destructive power. And so I think we have to be very eyes wide open about both of those things, about recognizing what the harms are and what could possibly go wrong in order to build the best futures and, and create the best possible outcomes with tech. And I think kind of in general, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> if anything, right? Yeah. But I, I thought it was very interesting that your example of um, the one scenario that seemed like it did offer some dimensional empathy or, or some recontextualizing of empathy was uh, Kathy Hackle, who's a friend of mine, and, and I'm she may be watching this show. Uh, so Kathy had, had talked about losing her feeling of empathy from having been subjected to horrendous video footage at CNN, I think it was. And, mm-hmm. and then having that sort of reactivated by a virtual reality experience or a 360, 360 degree sort of video experience. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I think she, she told me she felt kind of desensitized. Totally makes sense because if your job is to sort of screen horrific images to see what's acceptable to put on TV, how do you do that for more than a few minutes without turning some you know, something off. But yeah, she said she used the metaphor of like a switch flipping when she, she had moved on from that position and then experienced this, this 360 video. Uh, I think it was one about solitary confinement oh, and right. ha- having, I don't know, it just kind of was like, oh, okay. Like that, that muscle is still there. And, and, and actually that's how I like to think about empathy is that it's a kind of a muscle that if we let it atrophy which tech can unfortunately help us do, it becomes more of an issue. But if we practice it more regularly, we can have better communication and relationships. Yeah, and I think that's a really important concept and and, um, important discussion. I'd like to set that aside for just a moment because I think I definitely want to get there and talk about how can people develop better empathy and use those skills and, and all of that. But I wanted to stay just for a second with this mixed reality discussion, because you also touched on a point just a moment ago about how some of these experiences, the uh, the one cut journey where you are inhabiting this fictitious black young man character. And I think you, you made a really interesting point and you had other experts who were, uh, you quoted as making the point that this is a really kind of tenuous process. Like you're, you're experimenting in ways or, or these experiments are being done in ways that you hope is going to create more empathy. But there is this risk of, number one, of exposing someone to an experience that they then think they understand fully and they can be sort of dismissive of now. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, is a huge risk. But also the other thing that was pointed out, I think I have it in my notes here, Kang uh, wrote in this in slang that the the very concept of empathy creation through VR is an othering process that right uh, that's that was such a brilliant observation so yeah so it felt like you you really uh, got into some some great critique of of that 
that notion of VR as an empathy machine. And what did you feel like you walked away with is sort of the, the takeaway, the summary and the recommendation for people? Yeah, it was definitely a journey while reporting the book because I did, I did start with this idea that I'm looking for solutions. I'm looking for positive future looking things. And then having to realize as I came across these different other perspectives that not that I thought everything was going to be puppies and roses, but that, you know, there, there are real important, significant um, caveats. And really, I just kind of came away with more of an ambivalence about what is possible. And uh, at least currently, I, <laughs> the final chapter of the book ended up, ends up being a little bit of a soapbox, which anyone who reads it will <laughs> see <laughs> about why I think tech companies need to take all of these things into more consideration. But I, I just think that I still think that exposing yourself to as many other perspectives as possible is always a good thing, whoever you are. But that piece, again, that we talked about at the beginning, that part of empathy is knowing what you don't know. And I think right now in, in the world and politics and culture and science, we're all trying to get comfortable with cognitive dissonance and with not knowing things and, and with having conversations about things that we don't have the answers about. And I think social media in particular really encourages you to just be concrete and to, you know, say, this is what I believe and stand by it in a debate, even if really, you know, you're more ambivalent or, you know, and I think getting more comfortable with not knowing is really at the core of, of all of this. And I, and I think that, that, that othering piece is something I, I think about a lot and I worry about a lot and I don't know exactly how to, remedy. And maybe we don't, but I'm glad to be thinking about that and being able to say, you know, I don't know. <laughs> and, and let me try to imagine more what that feels like. Yeah. And it seems like an important caveat or caution to be able to offer to anyone who's trying to create virtual experiences with the aim of increasing an empathetic response in people mm -hmm. that that there are those considerations too that there need to be sort of that holistic way of thinking about it that this could have the opposite effect of what you're intending and it could also create a sense of of um, outsidership in the people that you're trying to build allyship for. And, you know, one way to, you know, address that is just to include different kinds of people. Yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's kind of part of the soapbox I ended up on at the end of the book is like more women, more people of color, people with disabilities, people who, you know, are are descendants of uh, Native Americans or um, just people who aren't just all the same kind of Silicon Valley guy that and I say guy for a reason that, you know, not to say that every problem we're currently having with social media, for example, can be traced exactly to identity issues. But hello, if you don't involve people at the beginning of the process, it should not be surprising when these things come up years later or weeks later that, oh, I didn't think about that. I mean, that's yeah. not an excuse anymore in 2020. <laughs> Yeah, no, and it's such it's such a brilliant point. I actually want to pivot there to uh, talking about social media interactions in general. But just a little uh, side note from one of our viewers, Christopher Dans, uh, told us that it was an excellent topic, and also was curious about the chemical compound on your necklace. Is there relevant? Oh, this is serotonin, or at least that's how it was advertised. <laughs> and, um, I'm a I'm an anxious anxious gal, and when I have to do a, um, an interview, I like to have my my extra serotonin. Armor. 
Oh, I love that so much. What a what a great reveal. Thank you, Christopher, for asking that question. Christopher had also commented when we were talking about Kathy Hackle and, and her story, no one should have to shoulder the ugliness of an entire species. And so true. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, and uh, sorry, and Christopher just follows up and says, thought so, you rock. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But let's go back to, so online interactions are kind of a funny topic because I think it's kind of funny that you and I met originally through Twitter. In fact, I think almost everyone I've I've had as guests on this show I've met originally through Twitter. So, you know, there is this possibility of having real connection and making Mm -hmm. uh, really meaningful relationships with people, but certainly knowing that Twitter and other social platforms are hotbeds of what we might call antisocial activity as well. So uh, you really delved into this in in a lot of ways. It felt like, you know, you're, you're talking about the one topic was Dylan's show, Conversations with People Who Hate Me, and how he was able to confront people who had been, you know, toxic commenters and trolls with him. That seemed like it made an impression on you in, in the way you wrote about it. I just was baffled by the level of empathy that Dylan was able to have for these people. And I don't even know if that's what he would have called it, you know, at the beginning. But but listening to that show, it's so easy to stop seeing people as people. I mean, there's even some research I, I think I cite in the book about when, when people disagree with us, we tend to see them as less human, not just online, but in general. And if I saw someone saying nasty things to me, swearing at me, calling me names, my gut instinct is not And actually, this is changing a little bit because I think about this so much, but my gut instinct normally would not be, you know, oh, what's this person going through? Like, what's their life like? Why is this what they feel like they need to be doing? It would be things I'm not going to say out loud right now. Um, But (laughs) his, his ability to, first of all, convince people to have these offline conversations and record them. But then to just like quietly sit and just listen to them talk. And, you know, I think it doesn't always work out exactly how you would hope. But in a lot of cases, these people end up admitting, oh, I forgot you were a human. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't think you would read it. Or this is how I relieve stress because my life is difficult. And I don't feel like I have other ways of relieving stress. And, you know, I try to make the point in the book, too, that um, empathizing with someone isn't endorsing them. And I think that's actually might be the name of Dylan's new book that he's writing or has written. Oh, nice. Empathy is not endorsement. But it takes effort and it takes working that muscle to say, I can empathize with the fact that this person is stressed. They've experienced a lot of hardship. This is how they take it out on people and without thinking that's okay. (laughs) You know, like it's really about boundary setting, I think, and about moving away from the way that social media makes conversations into games. So he, yeah, I just think that his work has really kind of like given you a great example of what it actually could look like if we had more empathy in conversations about really difficult things. Yeah. And especially so, you know, you talked about it's an obvious place to go in politics and disagreement. And certainly we're going through in the U.S., you know, this big presidential election cycle. Feels like we always are. I know it it does. (laughs) It doesn't ever stop anymore. (laughs) From the moment there's an election, it's like the beginning of the next campaign. And I feel that uh, even if even for viewers who aren't in the U.S., you must feel subjected to this, too. It feels like it completely overruns international news coverage. So one of the things that that's interesting about that to me is that there is this duality 
I've written before about how we live online and and we've, we're increasingly our, our digital selves, our aspirational selves, and that mm. because they contain data representations of the things we love and the and, and like and admire and the, the data relationships to the people we love and like and admire. And so in one sense, it's like we're wearing our hearts on our sleeves more, but on, of course, we're simultaneously more vulnerable to, um, as Bill Vincent says in comments, this may have been discussed, but unfortunately too many online want their anonymity to be bad or to, to act badly. And what I think, so it's this simultaneous vulnerability to this proliferation of anonymous trolls and bots and harassment and other bad behavior. So what's the approach there? Do we, how do, how do we best, you know, use that, the empathy that we, we want to have that's a, a human-centric skill and navigate this complex dualistic world? What's our best bet there? Oh, man. I wish I knew what the best bet. I mean, honestly, my mind actually first, this doesn't really answer the question, but my mind first goes to having better including more things about communicating with people via social media in social emotional learning for kids. So, and just focusing more on empathy on that muscle for young people. But that aside, I think that for me, Instagram is my like horrible boogeyman. Like that's where I see this happen the most is that duality. And I love the way you put that because that really is where we are is that you both are trying to be your aspirational self Mm -hmm. on Instagram. You know, you're, you're posting the highlights or you're posting that you're having a bad day, but in a way that you think will get the most attention. But then at the same time, you will see, you know, all these anonymous users who make accounts, troll people. I'm currently fascinated and horrified by this trend of momfluencers, influencers who who are really into the QAnon stuff and are talking like they're using their platforms, which are branded. They have these branded partnerships to talk about all of these things. And, but anyway, that part of Instagram also exists where a lot of anonymous arguments and trolling happening within there. I don't know that there, I think the problem is that we're all being, we're all asked. And at this point, it just seems natural to all go into the same place and talk about the same things in the same way, but we actually all have very different needs. And I wrote about this a little bit in an article about the mental health culture on places like Instagram and Pinterest, where you have these pretty images that have nice sayings and sort of the commodification of like anxiety and depression. And it's cool to be not okay, but like, then you're comparing your not okayness to other people's. (laughs) And that connects to this because I think being more in touch with what our boundaries actually are and what we're actually comfortable and capable of talking about and how, I think that actually is a place to start for empathy for others. Because a lot of times when I've found myself in these kind of quagmire conversations, which I don't do so much anymore, but definitely have in the past, I realized like it was about that I was anxious about something or I was angry or I'm really being triggered by what this person is saying. That's about me. I mean, that's pretty common thing in psychology and just in general that when someone is trolling you or being a bully, it's usually about them. And I think if we get better at sort of empathizing with ourselves or just setting better boundaries, 
we're going to wade into these situations less. I mean, that's a big ask, I know, for <laughs> for millennials, Gen Z, Gen X, and anyone trying to survive right now on the internet. But, but. you gave some very useful guidelines. So I want to talk about one of the studies that you did write about that is talking about moderating social spaces and, and comment sections and news and so on. But the guidelines that, that the study present actually seem like they're a pretty interesting uh, sort of framework for us all to to think about how we approach interactions online. So I'm sure you know the, the study I'm referencing where there's the three basic conversational rhetorical moves. Mm-hmm. So I, I have them here in my notes so you don't have to reference it. It was staging, evoking, and inviting. Can can you, do you remember enough to, you know, off the top of yeah, your head to yeah. be able to talk through those for us? So that was fascinating to me. And I can't remember, but I think that was um, a Google API thing where they were kind of keeping track of what was happening in these comment threads. So right, there are those three different basic rhetorical moves in a conversation. And what I found when I tested it, because you could put text into um, this little bot and it would it, it would kind of show you all the different rhetorical moves that were happening. I had had, I don't even remember what the conversation was about, but kind of an argument with a group of people. And I put a part of our conversation into this bot and it, we were, it, to, it showed that we just all kept staging. We were all in the state. It just never went, really went past staging. It just kept being like, this is my argument. Well, this is my argument. Okay. But this was my, you know, just cyclical. So staging is, is you're just saying, Hey, look, this is the, this is the conversation I'm trying to have, right? Right. Setting up your view, setting up your expectation or your point. And to see that like in a graph, was like, oh, okay. It's like a little bit shameful that, wow, I, you know, that felt so urgent and necessary for me to do that. And I'm sure the other people felt the same way, but we were not having a conversation. We yeah, were it was just... not productive and an exchange. So those later two stages seem like they're key to, to having that more of an exchange, right? So the evoking, so pointing out relationships between mm-hmm. uh, the So kind of if you, if you, and unfortunately, people kind of do weaponize this on Facebook, where sure. it's really easy to tag people and Twitter. But it, calling out someone's name and like specifically addressing them or asking them a question—that's not a yes or no question, and that's not a leading question. Uh, or identifying common ground—I think that's kind of more evoking. And then what was the third one? Third one, inviting. So di- directly soliciting participation by asking a question or requesting a comment. Okay, right. So yeah, evoking—I think—is more common ground piece and. Um, inviting is direct questions. But in an ideal world, if we could all learn to have better conversations like that, but I just think the way that these platforms are built, it just is not, it's not intuitive to talk that way. It's so gamified. So how many notifications can we get? How many, you know, how long can we make this go on? Or how, how can I win this conversation? But, but going forward, yeah, I try to, I try not to stage as much. (laughs) That's a really great reminder. So so as a quick reminder for the listeners, it was staging, evoking, and inviting. And we all spend way too much time in that staging saying, this is how I want to have this conversation. This is my argument. But if we move toward you know, spending more time in uh, the evoking, the relationship between the participants and the inviting, sort of in asking for feedback and asking for participation, 
that could be more helpful and healthy. And I think what that highlights too, is that it's really hard to have like an argument with someone or a debate or a disagreement with someone you don't trust and who doesn't trust you. And so I think that's the main reason. And a lot of other people have written about this, but I think that's the main reason a lot of conversations online don't go well, because you have no reason to think that person, you know, to give them the benefit of the doubt. You have, you don't know what you have in common. You don't know anything about their experience. And so it's really better, obviously, to have these kind of conversations with people that you do know, but mm-hmm. we're in this weird backward situation where a lot of us are afraid to talk to our family and friends about difficult things, but it's really easy to fight with someone on Instagram, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. about the same thing. <laughs> Yeah, so we have a, a question here from Andy Polane, and I think you just answered my question, but I'm going to throw it up on the broadcast anyway. So he says, uh, the performative aspect of social media definitely leads to some toxic situations, either performative trolling or performative fake lifestyle. But the flip side of the promise of social media or the internet is that you can find people like you with your niche interests, etc., which is also mm-hmm. a comfort. So what's your view on this? And it, it does seem like you know, you sort of spoke to that, but anything to add there? Yeah, I want to say that, like you said earlier, there are so many opportunities for connection. And I have made so many real friends and learned so many fascinating things. And I do love the ability to connect with people who have similar interests, but maybe have them in a slightly different way, or, you know, they're a very different person, but we connect on this one thing. But one thing I've noticed is that the longer, so groups are ways to kind of focus on that part of media, but there have been several big Facebook groups that I've been a part of that the bigger they get and the longer they go on, the more they move away from the thing that we all have in common and become just as bad as the rest of social media. <laughs> so I think Yeah, that- when did this knitting group become this fascist group all of a sudden, I mean, right? But that, yeah. <laughs> but, but that actually also brings up, so so the influencer thing I was talking about, there's a lot of people who create communities and then they can make them something else all of a sudden, Just and it's just about making money or followers, which mm-hmm. then makes you money, And but the people who are following don't know that. They think it's real to a certain extent because we're human and you know we believe what we see. But I think that groups... I still have faith in groups. I still think that there's got to be some way that we can we can have maybe a new platform or change one of these platforms to where there can be smaller groups with maybe moderating that is more humanist, human focused, empathy focused that, you know, makes them usable. Honestly, Reddit is a better me these days than any other platform and I think part of that is because they've really taken a hard line recently. I know it took a lot to get there, but they've taken a hard line recently on the really bad stuff and just said, we don't care. It's just not going to be here anymore. And it's and their moderation teams on the different subreddits really stick to their guns and put a lot of effort into it. And I think that's really what it takes to focus on that community building part and not get bogged down and the rest of it. Yeah, I like that statement that I still have faith in groups. That's a, that's a good takeaway. I also have a, a question here from Christopher Downs saying, I found success in providing a reflection of what is being communicated with the person they say they want to be. Did you come across anything in your research regarding this approach? And it seems like you did actually uh, talk about that a little bit. So is that sort of like the idea of if someone disagrees with you, you kind of restate what you think they're saying to make sure you're on the same page? 
Yeah, you can, that Christopher, or welcome to um, clarify yourself. But it seems to me that it's partly that and partly trying to see the uh, the, the person who's who's communicating, mm. which I think you, you wrote well about, you know, one of the things seemed to be, you know, getting offline <laughs> as, as, yeah. as soon as possible, right? Well, I think I think that it so depends. But if you've had if if you've had a lot of internet conversations, you can probably tell at this point like when you're talking to someone who wants to have a conversation and when you're talking to someone who just wants to get a rise out of you. And I think that if you're able to identify when there's a potential productive conversation that could be productive for you and or the other person, trying to take it to DM. Or, you know, if you feel safe doing that, if it's someone that you know, and you maintain that relationship, trying to have the conversation just in a less, just, there's just something about the fact that so many people are like watching, quote unquote, that makes like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram feels, it's so much more high stakes. And it's so much harder to access empathy when you are in like fight or flight mode. So removing that piece Unfortunately, a lot of times people are going to say they're just going to call you names and say, right. you know, I'm not or just like I have a cousin who I've tried that with and he just doesn't talk to me anymore. So like, yeah, I mean, you know. I, I think it, Christopher says I go to the person's character. Nobody wants to be associated with bad behavior or character flaws. And I think, you know, to the point where you're actually interacting with a person and not a bot and, you know, not somebody who has somehow been lured into the anonymity of troll behavior you know, then, then you may have some success with that. What, do, what is your thinking there? That makes sense to me. My only concern is that people get, get very, and, and this isn't just, this isn't a critique. This is how our brains work. If you feel like someone is judging your morals or your identity, that's what heightens that fight or flight resu- response and raises your blood pressure and makes you less reasonable <laughs> and yeah. less empathetic. So if there's a way of engaging someone on that level without like, accusing them of things. But again, it depends on the person. That's where I go back to, you have to know yourself and what you're comfortable with and what your boundaries are. And remember that not everyone has the same boundaries. I think if more people were able to come at social media with that, we would have less of the issue that we have. But again, it's a tall, a tall order. <laughs> it's really hard. And so the follow up to another question, what what are your thoughts on cancel culture and purity tests? And it, it does seem like we, you know, we sort of touched on it a little bit, but it, it's in your book, you talk about, uh, and it was again, Dylan, I think was talking about this, right? The idea, I, I have the quote here, it can feel weird to be empathizing with someone you profoundly disagree with, especially in an age when people say you're just as bad as them if you empathize with them. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a really profound observation on his part. And we do have that problem where, you know, we're trying to, uh, you know, on one hand, I think that we imagine that if we did the right things or said the right things that we could reach across and influence people who don't agree with us. And yet, on the other hand, we do kind of have this sort of purity standard and a desire not to be seen to be weak or to be giving ground to people who disagree. Mm-hmm. And so, I, you know, I, I wonder if we have any kind of tools coming out of what you've learned and what you've seen in the research that give us necessary steps to be able to communicate with people and engage engage at the level we're comfortable with and in a way that's going to be as productive as we can make it and and also disengage when we need to this is a really great question i think that right now most of the 
solutions around this are more band-aid things like Twitter making it easier for you to control who replies to you. Or for a long time, there have been things where if you're getting like a ton of responses, there are bots that can just make them all go away. But I, I actually think, I think that there's a lot going on here at the same time. I think in general, I don't like the phrase cancel culture because I think it's kind of been used to lump a bunch of different things together and say that they suck, which I don't think is fair. And I think you're right that, again, we have a duality where we're social media, in addition to helping people connect with one another, has given a lot of people a platform who would not other platform. So a lot of people of color, a lot of women, younger people, people with disabilities, all kinds of people who we normally wouldn't, you know, survivors of sexual assault, just people who can take this platform and they're on the same level as like a New York Times journalist and say things. And I think that's really important. And that's part of what's led to a lot of the reckoning we've had where people have gotten quote unquote canceled. But I think as you mentioned, there is also a concern where it becomes a performative thing where people say, oh, who do we hate today? How can I torture them? And that is, I think, the piece that uh, again, like, it's it's such a personal thing. It's such a, like, I tell everyone, like, can you examine why you feel the need to do this? But <laughs> barring that, I think that some of the little tools that the platforms are creating that are kind of Band-Aids are helpful. I don't really know. Like, I think the only way you stop that is by removing the reward for doing it, right? So that's why I think, like, Instagram, you can, there are some but there was a test where you could not allow comments. And I think you can, mm. you can do that. You can say no comments. But another thing is these, these moderation tools that are being created and they're a little controversial because, you know, it's AI. As I talk about in the book and I've seen you talk about too, I think AI knows what we teach it. And so if we teach it bias, it learns bias. But there are some AI tools, including the one that we were talking about that that, that recognizes the different rhetorical tools um, or moves that are being created to monitor conference and kind of nudge you and say, like, are you sure you want to do this? So I know Nextdoor has this. Twitter, I think, started rolling it out a little bit. I mean, these are private companies who don't really have that much at stake with this, and they're, they're not going to. So people, you know, I saw when it got rolled out a little bit on Twitter, people were getting things that were like, are you sure you want to say this? And they just screenshot that and tweet it and are like, LOL, Twitter is asking. Yeah, I'm going to say it tweet. twice. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to say it twice now. I'm going to say it 15 times. So... I don't know. Yeah, you, well, it, I think, it <laughs> you know, you're making a really good point uh, in what you're presenting that, that I, I think needs to be spelled out even more, which is it, it's important that we biguate between mere differences of opinion that can actually make us better people mm-hmm. by understanding mm-hmm. each other's perspective and make us more well-rounded and better able to appreciate different life experiences and what we each bring to the interactions that we have. And that's assuming good faith, though. That's assuming that right. people are coming to interact with each other and meet on common ground with the intention of understanding one another. And that, of course, is not, it's an idealist uh, situation that doesn't happen all that often because we have that army of trolls and bots and bad actors who are acting anonymously. And it's really hard sometimes to ambiguate between those two or distinguish between them. So that's a level of sophistication that's kind of on us 
as users of these platforms because the platforms haven't done a sophisticated enough job exactly. of dis- disambiguating those accounts. And I don't know if they can. I mean, if we've been, especially as women, if we've been now conditioned that anytime we put something out on the internet, it's likely a man is going to say something to us. I mean, now you're on alert for that. Right. And if you've been trolled a lot, you're on alert for that. And how do you, we can't just tell people who've been, you know, significantly harmed in some cases, like having their houses swatted, having to move just for tweeting that, oh, you should just try to assume good faith in every right. and. <laughs> but yeah. I think that's a good point that there there is a piece of this, that there is a personal responsibility piece of this because the tech just doesn't do that. And I don't know if we want it to. Yeah, I'm not sure we want it to. I think that is a level of sophistication that we ought to equip ourselves with more and more It is the ability to recognize good faith from bad faith, you know, to the extent that we can and, and to the extent that it that it's a dichotomy such as that. And the ability to say, do I feel capable of reading 10,000 other people's thoughts today? healthily? And if not, can I convince myself that I don't need to do that. Because I think we've all just convinced ourselves that you you have to check Twitter 15 times. You have to scroll on Instagram <laughs> for 15 minutes. And it's like, mm, I mean, you don't have to. <laughs> like, if, You're blowing you know. my mind here. <laughs> hey, this is a, I mean, I, I'm talking about myself. Like I have struggle. I have the time limit thing. I, I very often will say ignore, you know, and keep going. So yeah, that's but good. I think we, if we think of it, I think just Thinking about that more yeah. is a step in the right direction. Sure. So I think with our last few minutes here, it would be helpful to circle around to that that topic of how do we increase our empathy? Because you did actually have some studies and some examples that you cited that can actually help us. You know, I feel like this is a topic that's evergreen. When I speak at, at companies on digital transformation and when I talk to corporate leaders and design teams and so on, so often one of the questions that comes back is, we understand it's important to empathize with people, but what if you just aren't very good at it? Like, how do we actually develop that muscle, as you mentioned earlier. And and I think, too, as a team, how do people mm. build empathy as a team? Do you have some specific guidelines or suggestions that came from the research? Um, one thing that has actually been researched that has nothing to do with technology, actually, is just reading fiction. This has been shown, especially in kids, that, I mean, if you think about it, it makes sense. You're literally putting yourself in the shoes of a character that's life is probably really different from yours and learning how to process the emotions of someone who isn't you and learning to do counterfactual thinking, which is something I learned from the amazing Jane McGonigal, who I'm sure you know, where you're kind of imagining something that's never happened, but is possible and like how your body and brain might react to that. That is huge. I I just read it. That's amazing that that's a thing, that just reading literary fiction yeah. can actually increase your empathy. And it doesn't take that much effort and it's fun. Right. So, Absolutely. Uh, but the, as a team thing, I think is a really interesting point because especially, you know, this summer with there being so much unrest related to the death of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter and police brutality, there's this rush to remember diversity and inclusion initiatives. Let's let's do those again. And, and I think you can't there's a lot of pros and cons to those things that I won't go into and I'm not an expert on, but I think trying to have a meeting or a workshop about building empathy 
just kind of out of the blue, I don't think is going to be effective. I think if people don't trust each other, like we mentioned before, people don't feel safe if they don't feel like they know each other, it's not going to be effective. And I think a lot of times when businesses are talking about empathy, they're talking about how can we have more empathy for our customers? And there are frankly just things that don't make business sense that make empathy sense, (laughs) you know? So I don't know, that's really hard. But I think the just basic things like exposing yourself to more ideas and, and, and people that are different from you, following people on social media who are different from you, not to hate them and not to, you know, make yourself angry, but to just kind of absorb and not respond. Like just remembering you don't always have to respond. You can take a breath. A lot of this is kind of like cognitive behavioral therapy stuff. <laughs> and Celeste Headley, she just has not has a new book out, but she had a book out a few years ago called We Need to Talk. And I mentioned that in the book. And there's amazing tips in there for just like conversational tools or moves that, that really work to show empathy. But yeah, but that the question about, you know, as a group, building empathy as a group, that's something I'll have to think about more because that's really interesting. Great. I, I hope you do. And I hope you're able to publish some, some work on it because I think it is a needed area. I mean, obviously yeah. you alluded earlier to the notion that technology shouldn't be built and tools shouldn't be built for a population that don't include that population. So certainly that's one of the answers is this is why we need diversity and inclusion is because we need to be able to address holistically and meaningfully like what the lived experiences of a diverse group of people are. Yeah. I mean, maybe it is that I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here trying to think about like something really intellectually rigorous, but maybe the answer is literally just like, oh, if everyone in your development suite looks the same, like that might be part of that might be a place to start. (laughs) Certainly a good place to start. You know, one of the other uh, little tidbits that I thought was so interesting was that you had a study that you cited that said that we actually empathize better to things that we hear as opposed to what we read. Mm -hmm. That's so So fascinating. This is part of why I am a huge proponent of podcasts. And it's why I talked about Dylan Marin's podcast so much. And there's a few other podcasts I listen to where people like if I was reading what this person was saying, I might be like, oh, you know, (laughs) roll my eyes. I'm not interested or not finish it. But it's it's such a passive way to consume things. But you can there's no way to immediately have a knee jerk response. So I found myself listening to like hour and a half long interviews with people I, whose beliefs I kind of despise, but I want to understand and way that doesn't like raise my blood pressure or make me feel like I need to respond in the same way that social media does. And yeah, there was research that showed that people who only could hear each other and couldn't also see her scored higher on empathy in conversations with one another. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, we, we definitely need more research in that area. So I'm a big podcast person. <laughs> I love it. I love that, that answer. And so one last quick thought before we wrap up and, and get, you know, the information on where people can find you and your work. I noticed you say on Twitter that you're pregnant. Is that right? Yes. Congratulations. That's Thank amazing. You. <laughs> Have you given any thought yet to what you're going to be doing as your child grows as far as tech exposure and, and yeah. limitation and things like that? I it is so crazy. I'm I'm not due until January and it's amazing the number of things I already need to 
apparently have figured out. Um, <laughs> but I've thought about this a little bit. I am reading a bit about some of the new research on time and how uh, the experts are now saying parents should be more concerned with what kids are doing on screens than how much time they spend doing it, hmm. which I find really interesting. And so I guess my thought is that I'm not going to I'm not a cut X, Y, Z out of your life kind of person. I find that doesn't work for me and for a lot of people. So, you know, I'm not going to give my one-year-old an iPad probably, but I I think being involved in that exposure is really something I'm going to try to do. I, I loved this thing that I read recently um, from a researcher whose name escapes me at the moment, who said that we basically need to have new dinner table conversations with our kids, where instead of saying, you know, like, or in addition to saying, what did you do at school today? Or, you know, what did you learn today? But specifically, what did you learn on the internet today? Or like, what what's like a funny thing you saw on the internet today? Making that kind of the new dinner table conversation. So you're involved. And then you're also acknowledging that it's not always a waste of time. Like kids are looking for support on the internet. They're learning things. They're being super creative. And I, yeah. So I, so I like the direction that that's going. I'm trying not to worry about it too much until it comes up, but it's good. <laughs> they may even someday connect with a really brilliant author and have them on their live show. I mean, it's possible. <laughs> possible. So Caitlin, thank you so much for being here with us today. Mm-hmm. How can people find you and your work? What's the best way to connect with you online? So I am on Twitter. Um, despite everything I just said, <laughs> I am on Twitter at Caitlin Ugolik. So it's K-A-I-T-L-I-N-U-G-O-L-I-K. And I, I also have a website. You can actually go to thefutureoffeeling.com, which is the name of my book, or caitlinugalick.com, and you can there. I have a newsletter there that you can sign up for that has been kind of on hiatus during quarantine, but hopefully we'll get back up and running soon. Sadly, not the cake newsletter, though. No, I started a cake newsletter at the beginning of quarantine, and it was fun, but then it just became too much work. But yeah, if you want to read other things I've written, it's at my website, and there's a link to, to buy the book there as well if you're interested. All right. And Christopher Dan says, thanks so much, Caitlin. Appreciate your perspective. This was enlightening. So thank you. I so much appreciate you being here. Thanks for listening to the Tech Humanist Show. You can find more information about the show's guests and links to their projects at thetechhumanist.com, where you can also find more episodes, or you can subscribe at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kate O'Neill. Join me next time for more about how data and technology shape the human experience.